It's one of the most famous Coast Guard cutters of all time, yet few recall the name Escanaba. It saved over 100 lives when the troop ship Dorchester was sunk by a German U-boat in 1943. I saw the Dorchester making its last lurch into the ocean. And you're looking at it and you're saying, I can't help you, I wish I could help you, how can I help you? And you can't. It's something that will live with me forever. The method of retrieving survivors was invented by the first officer on the Esky, who sadly would find himself in the icy North Atlantic when his ship mysteriously exploded off Greenland. There's nothing over there but um, no, like a cloud of water vapor or steam or smoke or something. Storis was over there, and she was not too far from where the Escanaba had gone down. Prousey would be one of three men recovered when the Escanaba went down. Survivor Ray O'Malley believed it was a German U-boat that killed 101 of his friends. The Escanaba broke right in two. I saw the bow coming at me and I saw the stern coming at me and I started the swimming and I was blowing up. I'm Rick Mixter. I've spent decades investigating the loss of the Escanaba. Join me for an in-depth look at this Great Lakes built cutter and the heroes who were lost with it on this episode of Great Lakes Mixtures. In 1933, newspapers heralded a gleaming white cutter as the answer to sailors' prayers. Recent sinkings on Lake Michigan had prompted action by Congress to fund a rescue ship that could respond to tragedies like that of the Andasti, Milwaukee, Salver, and Wisconsin. Eighty lives were lost in fall gales of 1929 alone, and over a half million dollars was allocated to Defoe Boat and Motor Works in Bay City to build a cutter that could patrol year-round. Escanaba was the first of her size and characteristics. 165 feet long with a steel hull twice the thickness of other ships her size. It had wireless telegraph and a radio direction finder that could seek out radio signals from ships in distress. A massive towing engine on deck could winch stranded ships and a million candle power searchlight could penetrate the blackness of night. After 11 months of construction, Escanaba was ready to slide sideways into the Saginaw River. Christened by a bottle filled with water from all five Great Lakes, it was launched and then sent to its new home in Grand Haven, Michigan. 2,000 people came to visit the ship in a freezing blizzard that snarled traffic. Ships and factories blew whistles to greet the men who would become synonymous with the Coast Guard city. Within 10 days, Escanaba would be credited with its first rescue. A fish tug was locked in the ice off Muskegon and the cutter pulled the crew to safety. That next week, the mail plane from Wisconsin ditched in the middle of Lake Michigan. The Escanaba sailed out with its bright searchlight cutting through the midnight void. Two pilots clinging to the wing of their amphibious plane saw the beacon and shot flares to bring the cutter to them. After seven hours on a sinking airplane, the pilots and most of their mail were saved. That powerful searchlight would again be called into action two years later when a November gale pushed the freighter court into Muskegon's breakwall. A Coast Guardsman was lost attempting a rescue, and the men used a line to cross to the break wall and walk to safety. If you remember my second podcast called The Larson Legacy, you will recall Captain Cox's voice recorded in this newsreel in 1934. Sorry that the, the accident of the Coast Guard losing their men, and I think we've done the only thing that possibly could have done to save the lives of the crew. Never before had freighters needed an escort like Escanaba, which was featured in Life magazine in April of 1937. 
The writer boasted that cargo moved on the Great Lakes was more than all the rest of the nation's ports put together, and traffic on the Sulaks was busier than the Panama and Suez canals combined. Escanaba was dubbed the savior that opened the Straits of Mackinac every year. The icebreaking prowess of the Esky would be called into action as the world was pushed into war. In 1940, the ship was docked in Wisconsin, its mission shrouded in secrecy as new guns were installed and extra cruise quarters arranged. Escanaba was not on station during the Armistice Day storm that sank four freighters and killed some 60 sailors. Newspapers were critical of her absence, noting the deaths of two fish crews near her old home port of Grand Haven. A visit to Chicago on February 21, 1941 showed off her new armament. A strange-looking depth charge launcher, dubbed Big Bertha, was added to her stern, and anti-aircraft guns were now on deck. One of her two masts had been removed, later to be installed in a park in Grand Haven. Escanaba was moving to her new home in Boston in preparation for work in the Greenland Patrol. Crewman Ray O'Malley remembers the cutters were called to the North Atlantic even before the U.S. had officially entered the war. They were built for icebreaking and rescue work. When the war started, they, they automatically went under the Navy Department, and then there was a rush like to your shipyard, and uh, they put fighting gear on them. Uh, they had to put depth charge racks on. They put uh, K guns, Y guns, uh, five inch guns, uh, uh, three inch guns. You went to sea in a revised warship, I guess you'd call it. Escanaba was indeed a warship, credited in some records for sinking two German U boats, but no Nazi records I've found confirm those losses. When a torpedo ripped into the USS Cherokee, Escanaba sailed in to pick up over 20 survivors. Its executive officer, Bob Prousey, was tormented by the fact that they couldn't save more lives, and he devised a new method to retrieve men from the icy Atlantic wearing an improvised rubber suit. This would be vital to 100 shipwrecked sailors in February of 1943. Army personnel were being moved by former cruise ships to Greenland as airbases were carved out of the frozen Arctic tundra. Teenager Ben Epstein was an accountant who would help at airplane refueling stations at Bluey West 1 in Ersarsawak. Greenland was there for basically two or three purposes. Number one, fighter planes were manufactured in the United States. They did not have the fuel capacity to fly over the Atlantic Ocean. They flew from where they were manufactured to Newfoundland, Newfoundland to, Green, to Greenland, Greenland to Iceland, Iceland to Great Britain. That was known as the 30th Fairing Squadron. That was one of the main purposes. A second reason was that there was an ore that was discovered in Greenland, which was absolutely necessary for the manufacture of aluminum, which was absolutely a necessity. We couldn't have won the war without the aluminum for planes and everything else. U.S. Coast Guardsmen had been guarding those cryolite mines since 1940. The Nazis were using Norwegian boats to set up weather monitoring stations, as storms here would eventually make their way to Europe. It was also the hunting grounds for Nazi submarines called U-boats. Ben Epstein never thought he'd be stationed here after being drafted during his senior year in business school, but when a parka was issued to him, he knew it was going to be cold. The Army Air Corps said his testing made him a perfect candidate for radio school but Ben disagreed. 
Now, I said to the officer, I am the least scientific person you'll ever meet. So I'm not interested in the air corps. I'm just saying to you, I'm a, a graduate accountant, and that's where I think I should be placed. Didn't say anything. And then a couple of days later, I found, my, I found myself on a train to Denver, Colorado, where there was an Air Corps Administrative School. When I got there, I befriended a fellow soldier, a fellow by the name of Vincent Fruccelli. Ben and Vince would become fast friends as they were shipped by train to Stanton Island to board a transport to Greenland. The ship itself, which was originally, I believe, a, a cruise ship that used to travel along the eastern coast from New York to Florida, stopping along the way, and uh, supposedly a luxury cruiser, <laughs> and it had about, I think, a, I don't know if it had 300 rooms. When war broke out, we did not have any air transport or ship transport, and so they dug up whatever ships they could, as long as it could float, I gather, and used it as transport, and Dorchester was one of them. Ben and Vince were originally assigned bunks in the hold of the ship, along with several hundred other soldiers. His business school experience was again going to pay off with a move to better quarters. The next day, the officer of my Air Corps group came down and said, Epstein and Fruccelli, you are the clerks, the administrative clerks of our group. You are responsible for the personnel records, and therefore I'm transferring you to a stateroom, and you are responsible for watching those records. And uh, of course, as far as I'm concerned, it, it saved my life. Ben had joined the other men in the hold to go over emergency procedures. Each soldier was issued a life jacket and trained to use floating donuts if the ship should sink. Once moved into his cabin, he was told to use lifeboat number six. I said to him, Purser, I wonder if you can help me. He says, yes, soldier, what's your, what's your problem? I said, I've never been on a ship of this size. The only ships I've been on have been rowboats and canoes. And th this is a tremendous ship. I said, I know I'm going to be a very lousy passenger. I just feel it mind over matter, but I, can you possibly tell me what foods I should eat to keep me from getting ill? He said, I want you to eat, make sure you eat plenty of strawberry jam. I said, strawberry jam? I said, how come? And he said, because it will taste twice as good coming up as it did going down. Dorchester left the dock and steamed for Newfoundland. It seemed like an armada to Ben. We had a tremendous convoy. Oh, we all felt so good. They're protecting us. We'll have no problem. Because if you remember, well, you wouldn't remember, but at that time, the Germans <laughs> were torpedoing practically every boat going around. It was terrible. The armada would be just as short-lived as the calm seas in port. First of all, the, uh, the weather that year, 42, 43, were the worst that they hadn't reckoned. The ship was too old, didn't belong in the North Atlantic. It was very slow. It was just not fit for that type of duty. 
Well, after a few a day or so, we looked out and we didn't see a convoy any longer. Off it went on. It went on to Europe or wherever it did go, Russia, etc. And we were alone, except for three Coast Guard cutters: the Escanaba, the Comanche, and the lead Coast Guard cutter known as the Tampa. That was in head. They they were in charge. Ben was so sick he rarely left his bunk. He never felt like eating, but found some comfort from a rabbi that was on board. The army had four chaplains on Dorchester, including a Catholic priest, a Methodist preacher, and a Protestant minister. Each spent most of their time on board calming sick and nervous soldiers. I attended a religious service with Rabbi Good, but I saw the others. And what they did was, during the trip, most of the men were sick as could be. All we did was lay in bed and moan. They used to come through. They probably were as sick as we were, I gather, but they came to give aid and comfort to the men, you know, prop them up, what can we do for you? They were very nice, they were wonderful, they were very close. They helped, uh, they stayed with most of the soldiers in the whole of the ship. They performed, entertained. They were a great bunch of guys. Over a thousand miles later, Dorchester pulled into Canada. We made one stop and that's at St. John's, Newfoundland. We got off and we got a wonderful meal to us because it didn't move, the boat wasn't. And we had a great meal, took a shower, etc. And then we went right back to the boat. As soon as we got on the ship and it took off, we knew immediately through sonar that we were being followed by a German submarine. The captain of the Dorchester knew the only way the men would survive an attack was if they were fully dressed when they abandoned ship. The captain of the ship spoke to us through the audio system. And he warned us, he said, we are being followed by a German submarine. We are approximately 90 miles to Greenland. If we make it through the night, we will have air support from Greenland to bring us safely into port. But we have to make it through the night. And I urge you, he said, sleep with every bit of clothing that you possess. Wear it, go to sleep with it. Everything, shoes, hats, gloves, life preserver, winter coat, whatever you have. Wear it, please, wear it. And he says, good luck. And so we went to bed. I'm, I'm a cautious fellow, and Vince and I, we fully dressed, we went to sleep, sleep, whatever you call it. And precisely about one o'clock, we heard a tremendous explosion. And we knew immediately what it was. We were torpedoed. All lights went out. Well, actually the whole electrical system went out. And when we were hit directly in on the starboard side into the engine room, well, it was an old boat, everything gushed in. The, as, as came in, the water, the gases, and since most of the men were in the hold of the ship, they didn't have a chance. Dorchester was a terrifying maze in the darkness, but Ben was determined to crawl his way topside. After we were hit, you know, when we got up, we were fully dressed. I got a hold of Vince right there, and I said, Vince, follow me. And we felt our way to the outside deck. Ice all over the place on the deck. Cold. 
I can't explain how cold it was. The most vicious thing you could ever with. And we kept walking along, holding on to the railing. And so we came to our position. The lifeboat was in the water. And hanging beyond the rail was a rope, the rope leading to the lifeboat. And I said to Vince, I'm going to leap over the railing, going to catch that rope, and I'm going to slide down to the lifeboat. I said, do you hear me? Yes. Are you going to follow me and do exactly as I do? He says, I promise I'm going to follow you and do everything you do. And so I jumped over the railing, grabbed the rope, and slid down. Regretfully, it was the last time I saw Vince. Ben knew his lifeboat training was useless in the chaos. Every man wanted a seat on board a lifeboat. And before they could possibly be released, it was so overcrowded that the lifeboat capsized. Everybody was caught underneath. There was, I, and it's pure luck, was thrown clear. I guess I was near the top and was thrown clear. Ben was thrown into the ocean and he knew staying near the shipwreck would be dangerous. When I got up out of the water, I realized I was right next to the Dorchester. And one thing I, I knew from my reading, that when a large ship goes down, it creates a suction, and it'll drag everything down with it. And so, off I went. I had no idea where I was going swimming to, it was black. I had no idea. I just swam away from the boat. After a while, I was cold, frozen, and beyond anything you want to believe, I came upon a lifeboat. There were approximately 13 to 14 lifeboats on the Dorchester. Only two escaped. Two lifeboats escaped. I said to the, one of the soldiers sitting at the edge of the lifeboat, if you don't help me up, I'm going down because I can't hold on any longer. I'm frozen and I, I, I must. I said, you've got to help me. And fortunately, he helped me. Each soldier had a signal light pinned to his life jacket for easy identification in the water at night. This illumination would be burned into Ben's mind forever. I turned around. I saw the Dorchester making its last lurch into the ocean. And by looking at those red lights, which I said looked like a Christmas tree, what it meant was that each light represented a soldier, a human being, going down with the ship. And you're looking at it and you're saying, I can't help you. I wish I could help you. How can I help you? and you can't. 902 men went into the water. Only a fraction of that number attempted to get away from the Dorchester. Now you say, why don't they jump? Try to imagine the situation. The weather was beyond reason, freezing. Everything was cold. And where were you going to? You couldn't see a thing. Everything was black. Who could possibly think of jumping into the North Atlantic at that time? The largest cutter, Tampa, would continue on with the convoy. 
Comanche immediately started searching for the submarine, and Escanaba was ordered in to pick up survivors. The uh, convoy would never stop. Uh, it would keep going, you know, somebody get hit. In a convoy, there's always a, uh, a ship that's designated as uh, the rescue ship. So something that would be hit, the rescue ship would go to that area and pick up survivors if there were any. The executive officer on the Escanaba had been training men in cold water rescue using a rubber suit worn by pilots over the North Atlantic. A parachute harness tied to the retriever would allow them to use their hands and arms to grab sailors who were too cold to save themselves. When Escanaba ran into the debris field of the Dorchester, Esky crewman Richard Arigi was the first to go over the side into the ice water. Nine of Esky's men would eventually go in, two spending almost four hours immersed in the freezing water. Ben's lifeboat almost crushed Arigi, who helped wrangle the boat to the side of the cutter. My first vision was, our saviors are here. That's all I could say, our saviors are here. And it's amazing the feeling one gets when you're out in the ocean. I had no idea anyone would ever pick us up. I had no idea. The U.S. Public Health Service had an assistant surgeon stationed on board Escanaba, who was waiting for the men when they were dragged on board. Who greeted me there was Dr. Nix, the doctor of the Escanaba. <clears throat> he saw me and he said, threw me on a table, a hard table. <clears throat> and he put five Coast Guardsmen, one on each arm and hand, one on each, one on my body, and one on my legs and feet. And he said to them, one thing, rub. Don't you dare stop. I don't want you to stop. Just keep rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. They were worried, I know, they were talking about amputation. They were worried, frozen, gangrene setting in. Ralph Nix had limited resources available for cold water exposure. He took a flask of whiskey and he poured some down my throat. He says, what do you feel? And I'm no drinker. I said, nothing, I didn't feel anything. I couldn't feel anything. But he said, rub, rub, rub. And they kept rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. And, then come <laughs> and the first thing that came to a little feeling was my body. Little tingling sensation, what a feeling. Then my arms, then my hands. This is, took some time. Then eventually my legs start coming around. My feet wouldn't respond and they kept rubbing and rubbing and finally I felt the first tingling. Wow, what a feeling that was. And when I said, Dr. Nix, I think I got a little feeling in my, my feet. He bent down and hugged me. He was so thrilled. He was so thrilled. Brought tears to my eyes. He was such a wonderful human being. The Escanaba brought the survivors to their destination at Bluey West One. Ben entered one of the coldest countries in the world without shoes. Oh yeah, they gave us a blanket and over us. We walked into Greenland barefoot on a, with a blanket over us. They had nothing else. 
Only 230 of Dorchester's crew and passengers made it to Narsarsawak. Tug Captain Sidney Broussard remembers the guilt many felt over being among the few to survive. All that loss of life and colder than what. I only ran into one survivor of the Dorchester. He had been on a life raft with some 12 or 13 other survivors, and uh, they all froze to death, and he survived and came to the base and ultimately wound up uh, in the bachelor officer's quarters. I heard later that he committed suicide. I don't know. A traumatic experience. Ben Epstein carried those feelings until he died in 2013. It's, it's a feeling and a memory that stays with you. It, it, it just can't get out of my mind. There isn't a, a day I don't think of it that it doesn't go by. I can't help it. I can't help it. Escanaba continued patrolling and escorting convoys into 1943. There were many times when ice jammed the fjords and the ships just had to wait it out. The commanding officer of the Escanaba was uh, lieutenant commander then, as I recall, Carl Uno Peterson, an academy graduate. He's in his 30s, I believe. The executive officer was Robert Prousey, a lieutenant, and uh, he was an academy man, both line officers. As I said, I knew Carl Uno Peterson and I knew Bob Prousey because we had visited back and forth quite a bit. Uh, in fact, uh, we went up to Ivichut to wait for the wind to change and the ice to open up a little bit. And while we were up there, uh, we went mountain climbing together. Work still had to continue on the island. Runways were built, and Ben helped to refuel planes on their way to Europe. Ben remembered a broadcast that originated from Germany with a British-sounding announcer who tormented the soldiers. Hello, North America. Germany calling. We're operating again over six stations. We were finishing the airport in Greenland, and every night, I think it was Lord Hawhoy or someone there, you know, one of the spies, who would get on the radio and tell us, and they were so accurate, exactly how much footage we completed. And they said, keep on working and doing a fine job because when you're through, we're coming in and taking it over. <laughs> Newly assigned to the Escanaba, Bozen's mate Ray O'Malley remembers Lord Haha giving out specifics about their classified mission across the Atlantic. Did you ever hear of Lord Haha? He was the Tokyo Rose of the British. He came out, I'm going to say, approximately June the 10th or the 11th, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember. And he said that the Fairfax, that was uh, an AKA that called personnel, and they were taking on civilians who had just built uh, an airport up in uh, Greenland, I think they called it Bluey West One. He would, they, were, they had just got through building this airstrip, let's call it, and he came out and said that the, the Fairfax would never reach the United States, that they, they knew all about it and they knew what was leaving and where it was at. Fairfax had an impressive escort, 
five cutters, including the Storis and Algonquin, which had gone ahead in the fjord to search for submarines. Finding nothing, the convoy left Greenland. Captain Broussard remembers the airplanes told him the ice would allow them out, but it would be a tight squeeze. I was commanding officer of the Coast Guard cutter Rarotan, a an ice-breaking harbor tug, 110-foot, twin-engine, single-screw, diesel. His boat was a harbor tug, hardly suited for a journey on the open ocean. We departed Ivictut and uh, wiggled our way through lanes in the uh, pack ice. Creeping their way through Storis ice, the convoy would be an easy target for a U-boat, but Ray said he never had time to worry. I never heard anyone say, you know, God, we're going out here and we're, 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 in, we're vulnerable to the wolf pack. And none of the men ever said that. I mean, you would get up and you'd go and have your, uh, you'd go to, to mess, uh, you would eat, Many times, uh, you know, there were discussions about about the food more than the uh, the situation that you you were in. Most of the crew were allowed to sleep in, with Ray getting a wake up call at quarter to five in the morning. Now, at whatever time, let's say ten to five, they come by, wake me up, go on watch on the helm. So I get out of my bunk and I go up to the to the wheel and, and I'm on the helm and Baldwin now, mind you, is still two decks below, sleeping. Just 15 minutes at the wheel, Ray heard a weird noise that sounded like machine gun fire. We came out of Fjord, oh, I don't think we were two hours out or maybe just an hour, I can't remember. Uh, all I know is that zigzagging was the order of the day and I I got on the wheel and I guess they told me come to starboard uh, so and so and I just turned the wheel and the next thing I know I'm in the water. Only a handful of men saw the last moments of the Escanaba. Captain Broussard was asleep in his cabin when the alarm bell rang. Next thing I knew the general alarm bell went off in the cabin while I was sleeping and uh, somebody came to the head of the ladder, you'd call it a stairs, I guess, and hollered down something like, come on, Captain, uh, the Escanaba's gone. Storis was nearly two miles away, and through the dissipating fog was a bright orange flash. Quartermaster on the ship, he looks to his starboard, sees the Escanaba patrolling, and he turns his head away. And the next thing he does is he hears an explosion and he turns back and there's nothing but blue smoke. So they're assuming less than three minutes the ship was gone. Baldwin now, he's down two decks. We're guessing that he heard the torpedo whirr or sound or propeller, whatever you want to call it. Because when I talked to him, he said, I heard something coming through the, the, the outside is called a skin. The skin of the ship, he said, and he, don't ask me, he said, I just jumped out of bed and I started the run up. He had two ladders he had to go up, but you know, right in a row, like 
here and then here. And he said, Ray, I just got out the door, the hatch, you know. He said, I just got out that door and the water hit me. And so assume he heard something and three minutes later he's hit with a, a sheet of water that pulls him down. Nazi records don't report a U-boat attacking the Escanaba. In fact, most experts say the wolf packs had long left the area after air attacks decimated their effectiveness. Some blame a floating mine for the explosion. Ray disagrees. No, 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 it wasn't mine. I had just turned my, my direction. I, I, I just, you know, we're off a thousand yards, I guess, of everybody. And we're going along fine, and I just turned, uh, let's say, in front of the Fairfax. You know, the Fairfax is over here, and I'm here, and I just turned here, and we got hit. So to me, Baldwin heard the uh, sound in the skin of the ship, and to me it had to be a, it had to be a torpedo. Think about it. How could a mine split a, a ship right in two? I saw the bow coming at me, and I saw the stern coming at me, and I started to swim, and then I was blowing up. It was a torpedo. Ray was instantly stung by the cold water. The water is like uh, slush. And uh, if I remember right, they call that storus. That was in the water. I can remember that being in the water. But then when I get to the strong back, I don't remember seeing it. Water temperature at the time, I guess, was like 30 degrees. You can only live in that water like three or three or four minutes, and that's it. Raritan's crew was shocked at how quickly the ship was destroyed. You sleep with your clothes on, and uh, went up the ladder and took a look where the Escanaba ought to be, and there was nothing over there but um, no, like a cloud of water vapor or steam or smoke or something. Went up to the bridge, and uh, we were clear of the ice, so, you know, you could get around. There was nothing in your way and uh, headed over for the uh, explosion area. And uh, Storis was over there. And she was not too far from where the Escanaba had gone down. Quite a bit of debris in the water, a lot of paper, papers, you know, uh, documents or something. Now there's an explosion. We don't know what it was, whether it was the boiler Everyone that I talked to seems to think it was a boiler. But I know that we had our depth charges set at 50, 100, 300 feet, whatever. And they don't think it was depth charges to boiler. But I'm going down with the ship. I'm swimming and I, I, I'm looking up and I can see, I guess you call it daylight. And I'm trying to get up up to the surface, and I'm still going down. I'm fighting like mad. Now there's this big explosion, and I'm popped right up to the surface. Baldwin had the same experience. Looking around, I see at least four men, maybe five, I can't recall exactly, heads in the water, and I'm swimming towards this strong back, 
and uh, the captain is with me. I don't remember Baldwin, but Baldwin and I both were on this strong back when they pulled us out of the water. Both of us were unconscious. People talk about, you know, they, they die and they see uh, their life go before them, whatever it is, and I saw them. I just froze, and that was it. Five men managed to swim to the largest piece of wreckage they could find. It looked like a telephone pole floating in the ocean. It was a pad to protect the Escanaba's lifeboats. When you have a lifeboat on the side of a ship, you ever see a strap pulling the lifeboat in? Well, they call it a camel, too. There's two big kapok wrappings around this big wooden log, and you pull the lifeboat in so it doesn't slam back and forth when you're underway. The strongback was the only protection the men had, and Baldwin only had one arm through his life jacket. A crewman next to Ray didn't have time to tie his either. There was one guy next to me that was in the life jacket, and uh, he, he said, help me. So I grabbed the collar of his life jacket, and I'm swimming with him to the strong back. And now when I get to the strong back, I kind of pull the life jacket up. There's nobody in it, you know. He, he froze, passed out, I guess. And, and, you know, as soon as you pass out, you're down. So that was my big hero thing that didn't work. Radio silence is the order during a suspected attack, but the ships can still communicate through lights and other signals. Raritan's captain noticed Storis was searching for a U-boat. She had the black pennant hoisted. It meant that I have underwater sound contact with a submarine, stand clear of my sonar range, my, the range of my sound gear. So I obeyed what the pennant said, and I, I stopped. And in a little bit, uh, Storis blinks over and says... Uh, Go on in and pick up survivors. So I went on in. Protocol meant that the Fairfax and the largest cutters would leave the scene immediately. I looked over the port, and it was a, a strong back. It's a spar, wooden spar. And hanging on to this thing appeared to be uh, two men covered with oil, no life jackets, just barely hanging on. To the starboard over to the right was an officer in full uniform, khakis, cotton khakis with his shoulder boards, the whole thing. He had everything but his medals on. And he still had his uh, cap on, life jacket, floating good. Bob Prousey. The decision of who to rescue first has haunted Broussard for his entire life. I'm defensive about this because Bob Prousey was a good friend of mine. But in a situation like this, I don't care what you're doing, you help the guy that needs help the most. And that's, that's exactly what I did. Did he make the right call? He figured O'Malley and Baldwin were in the worst shape, so he pulled to port and his men grabbed the floating strongback. I put her right alongside the spar and stopped the ship and um, 
at first the crew threw a couple lines over, but these men were so cold, uh, they were in such trauma. One from the explosion of the torpedo on a small ship like that, you know, it's quite a, a shock. It comes right up your feet to your brain. O'Malley and Baldwin had blacked out from the extreme cold. Sometime later, their captain succumbed to the ice water and sank. So some of my men went into the water, and they no more than hit the water and started trying to work on these people when the shock of the cold hit them and um, just about knocked them out. I've seen people freeze to death in water like that more than once. Doesn't take long. Ray says a Raritan crewman later described what it took to get him aboard the tug. He said it took four guys to pull me uh, off that strong back and get me on the, on the ship. And he said he left then and they pulled Baldwin on. And they took us onto their mess deck. I was on the, uh, on the bench and Baldwin was on the table. And I guess they worked on us. They said they worked on us for, oh, like over an hour. No doctor on this one. It's tugboat. Just men, sailors. And as I say, they had been up in uh, Greenland for so long that uh, they didn't even know what it was like to be on the water again. All hands, except for the chief engineer. He was down below on the engines. Were involved, including the cook. And it took everybody in our crew not only to get these two Escanaba survivors up, but our own men that had gone down and gotten into the water. But they they grabbed on and pulled and heaved and everything else. And of course, the Escanaba was an oil burner, and that bunker oil. It was very thick, especially when the water's that cold and uh, slippery, and it's just a bloody mess. Captain Broussard said it took about five minutes to pull O'Malley and Baldwin aboard. He then turned the tug to starboard to rescue the other survivor he saw. Then I, I wiggled her over alongside of Bob Prousey, and he, when I had uh, come over, he recognized the ship, he recognized me, and he waved at me. And I'm certain that he knew what I was going to do. I mean, I didn't uh, ignore Bob by any means. My reaction, and it would be the reaction of anyone. I don't care what you're doing, whether it's a car wreck or something like this. As I said, you help the people that need help the most. Uh, and these two people were just a hair's breadth removed from death. Lieutenant Prousey was brought down to the only room large enough for them to work on him. Came around pretty quick. And then they put Bob Prousey, Lieutenant Prousey, on the mess table and started trying to give him uh, artificial respiration. Uh, we didn't do that mouth-to-mouth then. It hadn't uh, been developed. We used uh, modified um, 
Olga Nielsen, I think, was the name of it. I wouldn't want to bet on it. But, uh, you know, you put the fellow on his stomach and try to get the water out of him the best you can and then uh, press down, lift, press down, lift. And some of the other people move the arms and legs and that sort of thing. On Mr. Prousey, it didn't work. Broussard couldn't see the life-saving efforts given to his friend, and he became frustrated with no break from his wheelhouse duties. I had uh, cranked her up and, and was uh, rejoining the convoy. Uh, and I was alone up there. So I said, look at keep at it now. Keep at it. So they must have worked on him. And they came back a couple of times, you know, oh, 40, 45 minutes or more. And every time they'd come back, I'd, I'd get angry with them, you know. And uh, finally they told me, they says, well, we can't do the uh, artificial respiration on him because his limbs are starting to get stiff. We can't move them. So I had the chief um, take over the con, you know, handling the ship. And I went down, and there was absolutely no doubt about it. He was dead, and he probably died in the water. With no refrigeration on board, it would be impossible to keep the lieutenant on board until they got to Canada. The captain had to rig the wheel to keep the boat on course as he ran to the deck to preside over a burial at sea. There was a real sea running, so I lashed the wheel and ran down on deck, and I had already asked uh, Forrest if he had a Bible. He says, no, he says, I don't think there's a Bible on the ship. So I asked Forrest, I says, uh, we took Mr. Prousey and we laid him on the gunnel already. I said, well, all right. Bob Prousey was a fine man, a good officer, and a good sailor. And may God rest his soul, and then we put him in the water. Broussard would be stranded in the pilot house for almost three days before his relief would wake up and be strong enough to take the helm. My crew was incapacitated by uh, the rough seas. They were seasick. I stayed on the wheel for 72 hours. Part of the time I'd stand and sometimes I'd sit on a stool, try to stay awake, steer, hold her up into the sea. I don't know what day I woke up, but I got up out of my bunk, maybe a day or two after, whatever I slept, I don't know. Baldwin and I are now up on the bridge, and the only one up there is the lieutenant. He's handling the ship, and he, he looked at us, and he said, Boy, can I use some help? Do you guys know how to, how to steer? <laughs> looked at him and said, I was on the helm. He said, Okay, come on. Get on here. With help at the wheel, Broussard had more time to think about what had happened to his friends on the Escanaba. My conviction at the time was that the submarine was not shooting at the Escanaba at all. That uh, 
a 165-foot Coast Guard cutter, Great Lakes-type icebreaker, and rescue vessel didn't constitute a really desirable target for a submarine. Uh, Storrs would have made a better target, but the number one target would have been the transport, which was a sister ship to the uh, Dorchester. And that would mean that they had, if they sank the transport, that would have been the one remaining transport that was being used on the uh, Boston to Greenland run. Dorchester survivor Ben Epstein was devastated by the loss of his rescuers. Now here's the irony of the story. It's, it's as if someone made this story up. Do you realize how depressed we became, those of us who, uh, who survived? took my breath away. I, I just couldn't think. I was so down. These beautiful human beings who saved our lives lost. The U.S. government saw an opportunity with the two survivors of the Escanaba. Morale stateside was at an all-time low, and strikes in the factories and low-war bond sales called for action. Mel and Ray were put on a tour to talk about the horrors of war and how the American people could back the attack. Let's all back the attack. Let's stand by the ones who are manning the guns and pushing the foe on back. Let's we sold war bonds from, from Boston to California. Uh, don't ask me where, what stops. We were on a train. Uh, the train would stop. This was after that thing on... Uh, on the Capitol steps with the uh, Purple Heart. Uh, we sold war bonds from one end of the United States to the other. Now we come back to Washington, D.C. We went on that radio program and uh, made a pitch for bonds. You know. And Ginny Sims was the, uh, the star. And then we come back to uh, Washington. Ray and Mel did local radio appearances, live shows, and parades, and in August of 1943, the duo toured Michigan. Oh, I can almost name uh, Michigan all the way up, Ishpeming, Iron Mountain, uh, uh, Mackinac, uh, Sault Ste. Marie. But what they would do is they would take and put us into a, a state trooper's car and drive us to the next town, city, whatever you want to call it. We would go there, we'd have a luncheon or a breakfast or whatever it was, and then go to the next one, make another one, make speeches. And then finally we wound up with the commandant here in Chicago with the, the Gibson girl and the helicopters were just beginning to be a search and rescue operation. And we demonstrated that here. Escanaba's former home port in Grand Haven built a memorial for the 100 men lost. They dedicated it with Esky's mass that had been removed at Manitowoc. A service was held on June 13th, the day it sank, and that tradition has continued ever since. O'Malley made it a priority to be there. I missed a few parades, but never a, a memorial service. Why do I go? 
I guess because I, I feel I owe it to the 101 men that are gone. It took this narrator over a year to get the true story of what happened to Melvin Baldwin. With the help of a Minnesota reporter, I found his widow and did a telephone interview. After our chat, Beverly sent me a photo album and home movies of his incredible life. He and Beverly had one daughter, and in his lifetime he'd survived the sinking of the Escanaba, a car crash, and a plane crash that took his left eye and broke his arm and ankle. O'Malley remembers when the duo were reunited at a memorial service. I seen him one more time. He came to Grand Haven, and that's the last I ever seen of him, and he was limping, you know. Mel Baldwin left the Coast Guard after serving on the Tahoma in Grand Haven. He learned to fly and joined the Air Force as a rescue swimmer, saving two lives during the Korean conflict in Okinawa. He was hurt flying a private plane chasing blackbirds off a cornfield for a local farmer. Hitting an embankment, he destroyed the plane and ended up in Coral Gables intensive care for a week. Mel was discharged from the Air Force and took a job in his hometown in Minnesota managing an American Legion club. A routine checkup in July of 1964 discovered intestinal cancer. Mel had surgery, but passed away two months later. His daughter, Kellyanne, was just four years old. Ray only knew Mel for a couple of months, but his life became connected with him and the rest of the Coast Guard that fateful day in 1943. Today, a new Escanaba sails on the Atlantic, and they pause to commemorate their fallen brothers each year. In 2005, the day I interviewed Ray, they actually visited the site near Greenland where the ship went down. On June the 13th, invariably, if I'm not out there, I get a call from the commanding officer, and he tells me what they have done about the ship. Now this time, he called this morning, and he said, Ray, this time we had the helicopter fly over where we think the Esky went down, and they dropped the wreath. Now, that's never been done before. O'Malley joined the Chicago Police Department, serving as a patrolman during the riots and working his way to detective and eventually assistant deputy chief. One case actually brought him back to the tugboat that saved his life. There was a, a killing of a saloon keeper on State Street. I forget the year. I investigated it, and the, the only information I had was that that the man came in and asked for uh, a Cuba Libra in, in different saloons that he had been in. And I hit one saloon and the, the waitress there said, oh yeah, he took a bunch of change and went in and made a, a long distance call and we traced the call that he made that night, found out who he was, and uh, oh, I forget how long, but it was the ship he was on had gone to to Europe and then came back. And guess what ship took me to the freighter? The Raritan. I have yet to find details on that case and perhaps the logbook of the Raritan would provide a date. I have also looked for the radio shows that Mel and Ray recorded in 1943, but I have yet to find a recording. Ray had a bout with cancer and sadly died after complications from pneumonia in March of 2007. His ashes were buried at sea on board the Escanaba Three. I had also heard a rumor that the Navy was searching the deep Atlantic for Ray's ship. He told me in 2005 that perhaps finding the Escanaba would end speculation on why the cutter exploded. Fine. Great. Great. Then uh, 
controversies would be over. I mean, they can say the ship is laying half here and half there, and it couldn't possibly have been. I don't know what they'll find. Uh, I can't believe that they're looking for it. That's that's a lot of money for uh, for something like that to me anyway. I don't know. In his obituary in 2015, Ben Epstein was touted as the last survivor of the 902 men who boarded Dorchester in 1943. Ben went into financing after the war and was treasurer of a large corporation, but never forgot the chaplains who gave so much in the tragedy. These men were superheroes. I don't know if I could ever do it. Did I do it? No, I didn't. I didn't take my jacket off and give it to someone else. I don't know of anyone else that I ever hear a story of anyone taking off their jacket to give it to someone else. I think they left the message to the world. They did. I honestly believe so. To give up your families, you're going to your death. When they performed this act that they did, I think the message to the world was regardless of your faith or your color or your creed, we all must learn to respect one another, must learn to live with one another. In February of 2000, Ben was asked by a relative of one of the Dorchester chaplains to meet up with the German submarine crew that sank his ship. Two survivors of U-boat 233 came to the States, and they explained that their sub was also sunk during the war. We met with these two men, and we had quite a discussion. I told them exactly how I felt, and they understood. They were 18-year-old kids. They had no idea what was going on. It's interesting to note, they came with their wives, that we took them to the Holocaust Museum of Washington. One of the wives of the men of the German we had a catcher, she almost fainted, when she saw what the Germans did to the, to the Jewish people. Ray O'Malley had been aboard a cutter when they exploded an enemy sub. He said it was nothing like you see in the movies. There was no jumping for joy, but uh, we'd go down and you could see some men, they'd light a cigarette and they'd be like this. And... Uh, uh, I just don't recall a, a big hooray or a big uh, big boy, uh, a big celebration, let's call it. I guess we did, you know, we drank coffee, smoked cigarettes, and, and uh, but I just don't recall joyful thing from the sinking of a, a submarine. Today, O'Malley's family continues his tradition of remembering the Escanaba and its crew. The June event is known as the Coast Guard Festival, but the vast majority of the attendees probably don't know about the heroism and sacrifice that started this event nearly a century ago. Last year, the modern Escanaba helped to bring that fact to the forefront with a personal visit, a trip of over a thousand miles from its home port in Boston. If you'd like to learn more about the Esky and its career, you can read my book, The Wheelsman. Or check out my documentary, Cutter Rescues, available at Great Lakes Maritime Museums or at lakefury.com. There are also countless books and documentaries on the immortal chaplains. I'll leave you with a reminder that the interviews of Ray and Ben are copyrighted and require written permission from Airworthy Productions for recording or rebroadcast.
Lieutenant Commander Sidney Broussard was courtesy a private recording he made that is held by the Tri-Cities Museum at Grand Haven. Check out more shipwreck and survival stories on Mixteries, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And make sure you score us. The more input that is received, the more impact these stories can have with higher rankings. You can make a difference. And thanks for listening. Here's Dan Hall with Cutter on the Wave, the theme song to my documentary, Cutter Rescues. Even the seas flow wide and deep Where captains chart their run Their wake becomes a churning foam Beneath the Midwest sun From port to port on placid seas Cutter on.